Welcome back to a new episode of Dear Ruby, where we have been breaking down all the personal finance issues that Canadians are dealing with during this COVID-19 pandemic. I know Dear Ruby is a podcast that takes questions from Canadians and tries to answer them as best as possible when it comes to your money, comes to your personal finance. But for the last few weeks, we have been focused, laser focused on what's happening with COVID-19 and how it's affecting finances. And every week, we get together, we record a podcast, and there's so much to talk about, whether it be federal funds, emergency funds being available, provincial funds being available, how many people are now unemployed, how many people are applying for emergency benefits, the list goes on and on. And now that we're about six weeks into this pandemic, even from my own personal perspective, the idea of the insecurity and the vulnerability that so many people are feeling going forward um, is starting to become very real. And the anxiety I can imagine for people who already suffer uh, from anxiety is now starting to get, in some cases, unbearable. If you think about it, you know, every week, or every day, you open up the newspaper, you put on the television, and all you hear about is more people losing their jobs, more people worried about how they're going to feed their families, and no real concrete date as to when this is all going to be over. And there can't be a concrete date. There has to be you know, a solution to fighting COVID-19, most likely a vaccine, before everybody is going to feel comfortable going back into the office, going back into their workplaces, working shoulder to shoulder in some cases with their with their colleagues, and being able to come back to a, a life that we remember before all of this started. Uh, so this week, we're going to talk about some of the benefits that were announced uh, by the different levels of government, what the pros and cons are of those. And um, also some really surprising numbers of how many people are actually out of work and collecting emergency benefits. It's um, astounding how many uh, people are now at home collecting emergency benefits and not working at all. And that really is going to show when we get the labor numbers, uh, the employment numbers, labor labor force survey in in May for the month of April. I think that's when we're going to get the real data of how many Canadians have lost their jobs. I want to bring in my co-host, Bo Humphreys. Bo, how has your week been? How have you been managing? Uh, yeah, I feel a little bit tired, but uh, the week's been good. Uh, I was thinking about what you said about uh, you know isolation, people having anxiety, this is going on, and and uh, we have no ability to uh, figure out when it's going to end, and 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 also yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a new normal. I I don't there's no getting back to normal. There's no it's gonna be different in some way or another. But the one thing that that I I saw this week that kind of stood out to me on Twitter was you don't really realize um, like, you know, I think you and I are both very busy, right? We're, there's a lot going on. We're able to, we're still working. We're, even though we're working from home, we have, you know, we have fam- our family, we have our work and, and it's the life is busy. But some people uh, that I see on Twitter are just uh, sitting at home alone uh, with nothing to do. And they're really lonely. And someone just said like, all I want, I mean, it's, it sounds sad, but all I want is a hug from someone. Like, I just want to hug somebody. And it, it, it broke my heart a little bit. And that is so true for so many people who may be working um, outside of their hometown. So maybe you are live in Toronto, but you're from another part of the country or even another part of the world. You were unable to get back to where 
you your home is uh, because you felt that you needed to stay here for your job. And maybe in the interim, you've lost your job and now you feel like you're kind of stuck. You don't really know what you should do. Uh, a lot of people are staying because they're still paying rent on their apartments and they're feeling like, well, I'm paying rent to be here. And for me to go and isolate with my family, maybe somewhere else in the country, I'm still going to have to pay the rent here. I might as well stay here because I'm paying for this this property. Um, and elderly people, those people in in care homes, I mean, they are in lockdown. Whether there is a COVID nineteen breakdown uh, breakout or not, um, they, there is nobody going in to visit them. There is nobody going in uh, to give them a hug or a kiss or tell them they love them. You know, you see those awful pictures. I, I think they're awful of, of families only being able to see their their loved ones through the window. You know, hands sort of to the window, trying to connect with them somehow. It's heartbreaking and it's so, it seems, you know, I read an article this week where one of the things that this society, our modern society is finding hard to grasp is that we're not immune to old time pandemics. So I think that we have Mm. this, 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 this feeling as a society because we're so much more advanced when it comes to technology and connection, global connection, like we can call and see people around the world at any time. And we're on top of things, you know, a story will happen around the world and we're beamed pictures of it right away. I mean, we feel so connected and so in control when really we're are just as, just as vulnerable as the people in 1918 when it was the, the influenza, um, 1918 uh, uh, influenza pandemic. It, we are just as vulnerable as them. All this technology and all this connection has not made us immune to anything. It's actually made us a little bit, um, you know, on the positive side, it's helped us to stay connected because people back then did not have that. But at the same time, it, it some ways has made it worse because we feel that this can't affect us when it absolutely can. That's a really interesting uh, uh, analysis because, yeah, we're overconfident, right? We got all this. We're so smart, right, in this technology, and we're, we figured everything out. And, yeah, guess what? Uh, we're not in control. <laughs> Turns out we're not the dominant uh, uh, in, you know, organism on the planet. It's a, it's a, a viruses and microscopic beings, right? And we still have to watch out for those. And all of our smarts, you know, they, they're going to help us take care of it quicker than 1918, say. Um, maybe prevent the uh, deaths that couldn't have been prevented back then. But, uh, yeah, I think our overconfidence, uh, I mean, protesters, for example, um, is a good example of that, are getting in the way of that. Mother Nature is still in control. You know, yeah. and then this is true for uh, big weather events too, like when we get a big hurricane or a typhoon sure. or a flood. You know, yeah. no uh, no amount of technology can save us when Mother Nature says, you know, I'm in control. And yeah. this is her way of, again, showing us that she is in control and that even though this vaccine, we the, rather, sorry, this, this uh, COVID-19, we don't 100% understand exactly where it started and when it started. We do know uh, that it's spreading because humans are still moving around the world just as they were, as they they always have. And in some ways, because we're moving even faster than we were 100 years ago, we've spread it it that much more quickly um, and that to that many more places. And so this is just sort of, it's kind of like a, it kind of humbles us as as humanity, like it makes us realize that 
we're not in control. We just because we can call Uber and have a ride somewhere, you know, in five minutes, and we feel like we're really in control of our lives, or we can go get food whenever we want, we can go see our friends whenever we want, we can listen to whatever song we want on our phone, because we've got, you know, streaming music services. All of that is secondary to the fact that we are still vulnerable to disease and weather events, and other things that are just simply not in our control. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, this overconfidence uh, the, and the ability, as you just said, to uh, move around the world very quickly. I mean, a lot of the places that have not had uh, big outbreaks, um, it's no coincidence that they are islands, um, harder to get to. Um, and then, of course, the, the highest population countries that have you know, a whole bunch of different people traveling across their individual borders like the U.S. or the EU, for that matter, right? You know they're they're much more susceptible to people um, who are operating under different jurisdictions. Maybe everyone's got their different rules for this, right? And you could just cross over borders. So I mean, that's why it was necessary for a lot of them to close the borders, like we did between us and the U.S. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it sounds extreme, but it's the only way. I mean, if you want to contain something, you've got to close things down and then figure out where you can put those fires out, as they say, right? So this spot this spot has an outbreak. We can go in there. We can treat it. Um, if you allow people to continue to move around as normal, you'll never be able to catch up because people will continue to go visit family and friends everywhere around the world, and it'll be so hard to con- control it. I-, I wanted to start, uh, Bo, our podcast this week just to talk about two pretty significant uh announcement made by the federal government. One was uh, for support for students and new grads affected by COVID-19. And that doesn't mean someone who has 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 come down with COVID-19, but also someone who just simply a student who simply cannot find a job this summer because there are no jobs available for students. Often student jobs are um, working in situations where they have to be there physically, uh, whether it be camp counselor or working, you know, a, a government job where you need to go in and do some work in the office, whatever it might be. Most students expect that when they get a summer job, that they are going to be leaving their homes and going in and, and doing some kind of work out in out in the world. And so one of the criticisms had been is that the federal government, the CERB, which is, has changed um, quali- the, the change the way that people qualify for it, still did not address the fact that students would not be able to qualify for this money. So now they've come out. It's a $9 billion package for post-secondary students. And um, it's $1,250 for students who are eligible for it. And if you are a student that's also taking care of somebody, so you have a child or another dependent, then you can get up to $1,750. So not as much as the CERB, but still some money for students that will be available for May, June, July, and August. Because you're right, the the benefits or the emergency relief would be for people who either had jobs or had uh, a regular income, and then they weren't able to continue or weren't able to to find that next one. Uh, but they had previous work, so we, uh, the government would say, "Okay, well, I see that normally you would get this, and we'll try to help you." For students, of course, there there's nothing regular; they're spending money on education. But they do rely on being able to find a job for the summer or having jobs available for them, temporary jobs. But they don't have previous tax returns that will tell the government that, oh, you qualify for this or that. So that was the hole. And they they figured that out. They filled the hole with this 
this new student uh, relief and a little bit more for people who have kids and uh, disabilities too, right? Yeah. So those uh, grants that they give uh, students, especially those with disabilities, are going to be doubled um, in in this in the coming year. So it, you use that money to help pay for your tuition. Uh, uh, student grants for eligible students are doubled up to $6,000 for part-time students, $3,600. If you are living with a disability, your grant is also doubled. So that's money you will get that you do not have to pay back to the government that will be available to help you towards your tuition and living costs when you return to university in September or college in September. And that is really good because a lot of students come home for the summer holidays. So usually university is finished at the end of April, early May. And so um, students will work May, June, July, and August, and then they'll use that money towards their tuition costs or, you know, towards whatever costs they have as a student, because it is hard to go to university and carry a job, even a part-time job for some students who have a very heavy workload. Um, that That's just not available. And so there were definitely some students who didn't work and make that $5,000 criteria for the CERB last year, although some students did did qualify because they worked all summer and they were able to make that much money. Uh, but there was okay, still yeah. a small group of students who are back from university and college who did not work. And I would think that that would be students who were in high school last year. Yeah, new students, right? New students. So they were, this is their first year of post-secondary education. Because uh, most students, when they come home for the summer, do some kind of job. Uh, they don't They don't sit at home for four months. At least I don't know any uh, that are like that. Uh, but... Um, so well, the alternative is is uh, uh, you volunteer, and so they actually acknowledge that too. Especially ones who are volunteering. Uh, my wife is in that category right now, actually, because she is helping out uh, clinical trials for COVID. It happens to be centered in Hamilton. Uh, there's a lot of uh, um, uh, researchers and everything going on uh, here. So, and as a medical student, she uh, would be more qualified to. Uh, work in that uh, situation so they're they're offering anybody who volunteers and helps out during the uh, pandemic will get a like a five thousand dollar credit to their education uh, in the fall so that's kind of nice that's really good yeah that's really good and you know um the opposition parties have tried to sort of um come in and and they, their job is to, to criticize and I, I I haven't heard a lot because I think this is actually quite good for students. It, it covers yeah. most 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 young people. Um, the only criticism I have is that this has taken a while for them to announce. I mean, we're six weeks into the pandemic. A lot of students have been sitting at home since basically mid March, wondering what their future is yeah. going to look like, yeah, right. and worried about you know their university education on top or... of yeah <laughs> yeah. And you know, I know that even in my family that I have. Um, uh, cousins who have come home from university, like you know, they're they're in the early twenties, and um, they're still paying for their apartment, but they didn't want to stay there by themselves and be like how we talked about, you know, lonely and sort of isolated from the world. Yeah. So they came home to be with their families. They're still expected to do some online work, but then you know the expectation that they would go out and get a job, even those who have been offered a job have, have now had that offer rescinded because those jobs just aren't aren't going to exist. Uh, you know, university education is one of the biggest. Uh, reasons that young people are in debt. Mm -hmm. Average average student uh, graduates from a Canadian university with almost thirty thousand dollars in debt, and so this would just this would just make it that much more worse because they would have less money to put towards their education. They'd have more money that they have to borrow. So the fact that the government is stepping in and 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 doing something for these students is going to make those uh, students that have already have loans. It's going to it's going to help them out a lot. 
and uh, in my work as an insolvency counselor, uh, student loans are a huge thing because there is this very specific rule that you have to be uh, have been out of school for seven years um, for your student loans to be able to be included in a bankruptcy or consumer proposal. So if you are uh, if you have all this debt and and you can't finish school and and you're just like. Oh, you know, I, I have other debt too because I had to get through the pandemic and I have, I have this or I have that. And you're like, I'm just going to get a job to try to live and, and I'll file bankruptcy, you know, because I have no idea how I'm going to pay any of this back. There's that snag there that, sure, uh, things can be put on hold during your bankruptcy or during a proposal, but it doesn't get uh, discharged. It's back, right? It's back afterwards. It doesn't go away unless it's been more than seven years. So for for anybody in trouble, like if you, it's an interesting comparison, right? If you uh, went out and and were able to qualify for borrowing money, and you uh, went to start a business, and then that business failed, and you had forty thousand dollars in 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 debt, like a line of credit or whatever it is, you can include that in an insolvency. But somebody who has forty thousand dollars in student loans from last year can't, and it's a very sort of contentious issue um, that uh, you know people in our business have been trying to. Uh, change uh, the government's mind on, but you know it's still a work in progress, and it's probably going to be more of an issue in the in the coming years for sure after this. And that seven years that the students have the debt, with especially with the government loans, they're collecting interest. It's not like it's an interest free loan; they only get that six months grace period in the normal in the normal yeah. world. And their interest rates are often higher than what banks are offering. So you know, I know even for me, when I graduated university. 21 years ago, the first thing I did was con- take my uh, take out a line of credit that had a much lower interest rate and paid my entire student debt off. And then I paid oh, that line of credit off. Yeah. So yeah. it was just, it just, when I looked at it, I'm like, you're going to be charging me way higher than what the market interest rate, you know, I can go and get a, so I had to get my father to co-sign it because I had no money and no way of getting a line of credit. Um, but it just, immediately help me out because um and then also this flexibility with the line of credit you can pay a little bit more you can pay a little bit less in some cases it was bad for me because there wasn't as much urgency to pay it back but that's another story uh but it did um it did absolutely save me an interest cost for sure yeah and i mean we won't get into co-signing but that that gets a lot of people in trouble as well <laughs> in my business yeah um, yeah when, <laughs> when you know that the, your mom and dad are taking care of it so yeah it's a different yeah. it's a different a relationship with the loan definitely right because you can't make that's never going to go away either right if you file uh, they're liable right so yeah yeah uh yeah just something to think about too on the side but yeah it's uh you know i mean always try to uh, to get a lower rate on your debt but uh you know consider that kind of stuff too but this, yeah, students, um, they, it's, it's tough to be a student today. And so hopefully this relief at least helps people keep that debt down or keep it down to, you know, if they, they were trying to do it without debt. That's, that's probably the best way to do school these days is to uh, save up uh, ahead of time if you can, work whatever you can during, uh, get a program that is reasonable for you. Like there's so many ways to do this without having to just, rely on student loans and get a degree that's not going to pay any money. Now I'm ranting about it. So we should probably move on. 
<laughs> no, you're not ranting. It's good. It's good information. I mean, that, that is that is a very uh, privileged position for students to be able to start university and 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 pay for it out of pocket or have some sort of funds yes, that you know no. might be available. Uh, most students uh, graduate with some debt, and those that graduate with no debt usually come from more affluent families where their parents were forward thinking and they were able to have the money and the know how of how to put money away. There's a lot of things that come into play, and then even student jobs, and this is just even speaking from my own experience, that those people who, you know, came from homes where maybe their their parents worked at a bank or in a big government agency, they were able to place them and sort of guide them as to these student jobs that pay really well during the summer. Yeah, Whereas there's others, privilege there too. There's yeah. privilege there too, because yeah. they say, okay, you know, I know someone who's hiring for a student program, you should apply for it. I mean, it's sure. not nepotism entirely, but it's just know-how, right? It's just yeah. your parents will know that this company hires and pays you know, $10 more an hour than the, you know, working at a grocery store or working at a, as a camp counselor, these more easily accessible jobs that pay a little bit less. So the harder jobs to access pay more, but you have to know how to get to them and you have to know how to apply for them. And all of that comes with privilege. And a lot of that comes with, you know, parents who are just in the know about things and parents who know how to help their kids, you know, guide them towards those jobs. So there's a lot of, there's even in that, in that space, there's a lot of, privilege we could do a whole episode on, on student debt so uh, yeah <laughs> what's i guess what's the next item uh, that came up well, this, uh, this week yeah so i mean there there is um there's student debt and now you know many businesses are saying they're going into debt uh you know just even yes. this week i did a i did a uh a bit with uh am640 i'm their personal finance expert i come on quite regularly to talk about stories that are in the media or in the news rather. And uh, we had a call in section and one gentleman okay. called in and he owns a daycare out in uh, Pickering, I believe somewhere, somewhere East of Toronto and uh, said that if this pandemic lasts, this is just his own words, this pandemic lasts two, three months or four months, he could be a hundred thousand dollars in debt by the time this oh. is over because he's still paying all his overhead costs. So he owns this big daycare normally, you know, Children come in, they, the parents pay the fees and all that helps things go. Uh, but that's not happening, but he still has his costs. He can't just shut the business down. The business is still running in a sense that he still has to, to pay those minimum costs. Um, so the government has come up with relief, at least for rent, uh, for small business owners. This was announced this week. Again, it was something, um, that, uh, that the government, there was a lot of pressure on the government to do something for small businesses. Uh, what the government is doing is they're partnering with the province, uh, to allow, uh, small businesses to apply for rent relief. They will provide 50% of the rent as a grant. So the, it does not have to be paid back. So for, as an example, if you have rent of $10,000 as a commercial uh, commercial um, business and you pay $10,000 to your landlord, the federal government, if approved, will step in. They will pay 50% of that. They're then asking landlords to forgive 25% of that. So then the landlord would, in effect, pay $2,500. And then the the tenant would pay the rest the rest two thousand five hundred dollars. Now this is all dependent on being approved. Uh, there the C CMHC is the one that is uh, administering this. So and it also mm. has to be approved by the landlord because the landlord themselves may not be able to even afford to cover twenty five percent of the rents of, of a their lot tenant. of cash flow right. The, a lot. 
there's a lot of uh, intricacy to this one. It's not just go and get your two thousand a month uh, CRB, you know, uh, through your my account and it'll be deposited in a couple of days. This is so much more money uh, uh, in terms of cash flow that is uh, happening here. Also, it seems voluntary too, right? They have to, uh, the landlords have to be okay with this, or are, are they encouraging it, or are they mandating it? No, it's not mandated. So that has no, to be, yeah. it's like a case by case basis. Hmm. Uh, so you, if you are a commercial, uh, if you own a commercial business and you pay rent, so there are still some uh, caveats there. So your rent cannot yeah. be more than $50,000 a month. Um, you have to have a mortgage property. So if you, um, uh, sorry, the, the property has to be mortgaged. So if you're if you just own a, own a place and, and you don't have any debt related to it, then you're not going to get forgiveness because that's profit for you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they're, yeah. they're not going to. So there's a lot. So in a sense, it's like if you've got a paid off commercial property, but your tenant can't afford to pay you rent, uh, how do you how do you then how do you then get this this grant from the government? Because then you're just chasing your tenant for the money because you can't apply for this because it's through CMHC. Um, so there's a lot of it's almost like they're playing the the tenant against the landlord because, um, you know, if you've been a landlord for many years and you've paid your property off, um, that are, should you be, maybe you use the, yeah, now you're punished. Yeah, exactly. So do you use hmm. the proceeds of the rent that you collect to do other things? Maybe you have other properties to, or maybe to live your life. You've maybe yeah. you've retired and cause you know that that's almost guaranteed. And as much as, again, that is a very privileged position to be in, uh, that's also hard work that you've done to, you know, get all to build all that up. Why right? should they be punished for not being able to collect on their wealth? So it really is dependent on the landlord. So the landlord yeah. can decide, um, okay, I don't think I'm going to get rent from this tenant and right. I have a mortgage property and the rent is less than $50,000 a month, which is pretty big. I mean, that's a pretty yeah, hefty yeah. amount of money. So I, I'm not, I don't really um, sniff at that at all. Um, yeah. Then they have to apply for it. They have to have a mortgage property. So immediately they're only going to get 75% because 50% will come from the government and then the other 25% will come from them and the other 25% will come from the tenant. So immediately that's 25% of whatever rent they would have collected that they're not going to get. Even though it's coming from the landlord, obviously that's money they're not getting. So it, yeah. it's not really coming from anywhere. It's just money that they're not they going just to receive. Not, yeah, they're not getting it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. An so interesting way to put it together because <laughs> that makes it more confusing to read to read it, doesn't it? It's like, like it says, we'll cover, they'll cover 50%, but then only the tenant only has to pay 25% because the other 25% comes from the the landlord. Is that what you said? Yeah. And the thing is, it's being touted as emergency relief for commercial. So it's actually to deliver Canada's emergency commercial rent assistance for small businesses. But it's yeah. all dependent on the landlord, which is not the small business. So if I have a restaurant um, inside a building... Yeah. And I pay $10,000 rent a month because I happen to be in a really popular area of Toronto and I've got really high rents. Okay, fine. But I also am able to sell, you know, my revenue is also much more than 10000 So I've been able to survive. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, if you're a restaurant, your revenues fall into zero. You've had to lay everybody off, but you're still paying rent. You're still paying some utilities. I mean, you've got to keep the place heated or cooled or whatever it is. You can't just keep it, you know, none of all that has to continue to happen. Yeah. Um 
you're you're dependent on the landlord fulfilling all these things, having a non mortgage pro- having a mortgage property, um, applying for this relief, and then also a landlord that says I'm okay with you not paying me twenty five percent. I'm going to eat those costs. So it's really not relief for small businesses. It's relief for landlords who have mortgage properties who are worried that their tenant is not going to pay. That's what this really is because it's all landlord driven. I mean, it's being administered partnership between federal and provincial governments. It's through CMHC. So what does commercial business have to do with CMHC? They they have no mortgage with them. So there's a lot of manage risk when it comes to mortgages and and housing, I guess that's because they have more expertise. That's the only reason why they would be involved. But you're right. It's not the, 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 what's happening with a small business. I mean, I'm just paying rent. What, what does, CMHC have to do for me like that's not to do with me the only benefit for the small business in this case is if the landlord was able to pass on that then they get it but you're right it's out of their control um they don't have any control here yeah yeah so I have a lot of criticism for this I think that it Mm. really I mean if you're going to provide rent relief you should as a commercial business owner who pays rent to a landlord regardless of whether their property is mortgaged or not regardless of what their financial situation is it's your financial situation yeah Um, how is that your fault that's a really 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 good point right like just because you happen to have a landlord that is not a non-mortgage property you get punished for that and then on top of it, huh. they, you also have to qualify, your tenant also has to qualify. So even if you think about it from the landlord's perspective, okay, I've got this mortgage property, I'm worried that my tenant's not going to pay rent, but their their um, their operations have not experienced at least a 70% drop because of COVID-19. Oh. So, they, yeah. so they could say, well, you know, we're still kind of doing business, like our profits have fallen like 40%. 50%. Yeah. yeah, but that's still enough <laughs> to not be able a lot. to. Yeah. So today, if you're a renter, if all of a sudden your salary falls 40%, it's going to be hard for you to make rent because you've, you've got a rental, you know, your, your rent is based on your current salary and you've rented a place because you know, you can afford it. You don't expect your salary to fall by 40% or 50%. So I don't know if this is going to do anything. I mean, it's, you have to depend on your landlord. Uh, you have to yourself have a business that has uh, has had seventy percent drop because of COVID nineteen in revenue, and um, your landlord has to eat the cost. Like it just there's a lot of things in this, and I think that's going to hurt um, those uh, small uh, investment property owners. So maybe someone who has taken money out of their own uh, primary residence and bought. Uh, a property that's maybe mixed residential and commercial. Well, that, so yeah, that's those are the tough ones. The ones that have HELOCs out of their first property. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah. So you know, often in Toronto, for example, or even in Hamilton or anywhere in, in across Canada, you can buy a property that's got resident uh, re- um, commercial on the bottom and residential on the top. So you're collecting mm. two types of rent. Now there is still a breakdown for that, but I believe if the majority of the property is uh, commercial that you can still apply for this. So imagine you bought this property. Oh, okay. I, I understand yeah. what you're saying now. Wow. So imagine you bought this property uh, X amount of years ago. Okay. Say three years ago, you've got a restaurant in the bottom and a tenant on top. Okay. So your, your residential tenant is paying because they've been able to still make money in this, in this climate. But yeah. your, your restaurant tenant is like, I, you know, my, I have no money. And so then, uh, but they're saying, okay, but we're still doing takeout. So our profits have only fallen. 65%. And all yeah. of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like, how do you... It's the people on the edge. The people who don't fit this specific category of, of situation that they came up with. Uh, again, we're finding everything that comes up, there's more people that are left out of it. 
I don't know if there's anything that's going to be across the board helping everybody. Yeah, I don't. And I just think that because it is is driven by the landlord, that that is the problem. I mean, CMHC Mm. and the landlord should not be the concern. The concern should be uh, what the small, because when we emerge out of this, so using that daycare as an example, when we emerge out of this, those services are essential. Daycare services are essential for families to be able to go and do their job that is now outside of the home. Um, and if that daycare has failed and that's the daycare you used to send your kids to, you're all of a sudden in another predicament where now I've got to find a new daycare. I've got to be comfortable with sending my kids there. Um, if, you know, we want to be in a situation where when this ends, that the things that we were used to are at least available to us so that we're not now scrambling to find new childcare sources or new ways to, to, to manage our family day to day. Um, you know, these, these services, even though they have been deemed unessential right now, they are essential in everyday life, like daycares and restaurants and takeout places. And, uh, all these things are essential to make society run. And if we ignore that, we're going to have a pretty depressing couple of years as businesses are unable to get back on their feet and we're going to be waiting for the economy to pick up and new businesses to emerge for us to, to be able to take advantage of. Yeah, I mean, daycare specifically uh, is uh, very important for me. Uh, you know, the the only condition for me to go back uh, to start work full time in January was when we had full time daycare. So, you know, the only reason why I'm still able to work full time is because my wife uh, finished uh, med school uh, or they stopped med, the clinical part of med school at the same time that they sent uh, Henry home from daycare. But, you know, med school starting up again. And if we don't have daycare, then we're back in the situation where we were before where I wasn't able to work. So depending on what happens in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have to have some conversations. And I think a lot of people are going to have to have these conversations for people to uh, assume that you can still work with one kid, two kids, three kids. doesn't matter. Right. I mean, if the kid is screaming in your face and they need you to pick them up. You can't be having a I can't be having a counseling session with somebody, right? Some people can do work from home in haphazard ways, you know, work during these hours, work during that those hours, but sometimes if you do a 9 to 5 or you have specific meeting times, it does not work to have kids at home. Yeah, I mean that that is without a doubt. I mean, and the thing is Right now, even in your situation, it's forgivable to have a screaming child in the background, but that's not going to work for years, right? Like, I mean, eventually we've got to get back to not being, you know, um, playing mom and dad and full-time work. I mean, people are eventually, companies are eventually going to expect you to have a more professional sort of work environment or go into work. I'm just going to read you a sentence out of the Ontario release that just puts this in perspective. So they're calling it the Ontario Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program. Okay, that's yeah. what they're calling it. The OCECRA will provide forgivable loans to eligible commercial property owners experiencing potential rent shortfalls because their small business tenants have been heavily impacted by COVID-19 crisis. That does not scream rent relief for small business owners. No, so they're marketing it in a different way um, to seem like they're helping small business, but they're they're just helping commercial uh, landlords. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so this this is going to be the major. This is a I think this is not tackling. Is the same as if they're going to help people with their rent. They shouldn't be helping investment property owners. They should be helping the renters who cannot make rent to apply yeah. for a grant to so they can make rent payments. And then they can figure out with their landlord 
maybe a payment plan or whatever it might be. And then also for landlords, why should landlords not get that 25%? Why should they have to sign off for that? Um, so in the end, the government's basically saying, uh, you know, you guys figure it out. Here, here's the money we're going to give you. You figure out whether you want to give your tenant a break on rent, and then we'll give you some money. We'll give you 50, not some, quite a bit, 50% of it uh, as a grant. But for for the for the landlord, they're still taking a hit. They're still, you know, 25% of their revenue has fallen. And that I don't think that's fair either. There's, there's a lot of problems with this one for sure. Yeah. I don't know. Like, it's, we're just going to have to wait and see how all of this plays out and what kind of fallout there is. Yeah, I think that there's going to be more questions about this rent relief. It's um, it's dependent on too many things, and it's really to help commercial property owners, not um, small businesses. And um, small businesses need cash in hand to pay their bills. It's not just their rent. They've got uh, um, utility costs as well. Maybe they have some uh, – I know that they've been provided wage subsidies uh, for, for, um, for employees that are still working – uh, some of that is slow from what I'm hearing. It's the money has not come through for the, for, for small businesses. If we don't take care of our small businesses, we are going to be in a much worse position when we come out of this big businesses are going to survive because they're big and they're, you know, they have more money and they're able to do more things. Um, even small things like they're able to set up their workforce with computers and other, you know, technology devices. But if you're a small business owner that has 10 people working for you and those 10 people, depend on their, their livelihood comes from the business that you run and you're, you've had to lay them off. Um, when things get back up and running, if you've all of a sudden put yourself in a hundred thousand dollars debt, how are you going to hire them back? You're first worried about how you're going to pay your debt off, how how you're going to do things leaner. And maybe you might not hire them all back, maybe hire a few of them back. So that's going to be a, a, a bigger problem in the future if we don't take care of small businesses. And the last thing I wanted to talk about, Bo, is uh, the number of people who have applied for the CERB. The number just knocked me off my feet. Uh, The Employment and Social Development Canada Deputy Minister Graham Flack said 7.12 million Canadians have applied for this emergency benefit as of this week. That's a third of the workforce. We are 20 million strong, our workforce here in Canada. And that is all more than a third of Canadians who have applied for this. And I think that when we get the labor force survey uh, for April in May, that is when we're going to see the real damage that's been done to our economy when it comes to job losses. And when we're going to get a real idea of how many people are out of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, like they've expanded though, and who can apply for the CRB too, right? You can learn, earn uh, up to a thousand bucks a month on your own, right? Uh, you can get royalties if you're a, a musician. You can, if you're an entrepreneur, you can still be having a few clients if you don't make that much. So that's what there's way more people who qualify to now, right? Yeah. So as it's gone on, like any other benefits that's been announced, they've just tried to tweak it so that more and more people can apply for it. So some people actually make more money on CERB. So they've decided to stay home if they can, rather than go to work. Some people don't feel safe going to work. So they've decided not to go to work for that reason and are collecting CERB. And some people um, are are on have applied both for EI and CERB. And that's all going to be figured out when they file their taxes in 
in April next year. Um, so there are these numbers may not be 100% reflective of what's happening, but 7.12 million, even if you shave a million off of there because of um, miscommunication or people who have applied who shouldn't apply, I mean, that's still a, a, a boatload of Canadians that are out of work that are going to need somewhere to go after this is over. I mean, not everyone, This is, first of all, it's not going to last forever, this emergency benefit. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people are going to need jobs. And, you know, like we were talking about with the small businesses, these businesses have to be open and available so that Canadians can get rehired back. And I just wanted to clarify, when you say uh, if they, somebody decides not to work, is that some they've accepted a layoff? What are the rules around that? Because you can't quit, right? Yeah, so there are, um, you can be, if you don't feel safe, because that's part of the CERB. Okay, so that can be a good rule, r- r- rule to, you can use that. Yeah, so you just have to show that you haven't made any income for the last 14 days. Um, uh, I don't know whether you need to uh, have, you don't need a record of empo- employment. Not to, for the to, CRB. Okay. Yeah, so that sort of opens it up to more people. I mean, and if you're sure. freelance, for example, you don't have an employer. Yeah, there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing like that. Yeah, anyway. so you can easily just say, you know, if you're, if you're a musician and, you know, you're used to playing gigs, you're not playing gigs anymore. But even if, uh, even if you get a few yeah. offers, you might say, you know what, I'm not going to do that because I'd rather collect the CRB and not put myself in harm's way. Yeah, that's where that's where I'm at. I mean, uh, I because I haven't worked the number of EI hours to qualify for that. Uh, but last year, I did make more than five thousand uh, dollars as an entrepreneur, as 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 a musician, actually too. So um, I would be able to get the CRB um, if. You know, but I wouldn't be able to get EI. I'm in one of those weird categories because I was an entrepreneur last year, entrepreneur last year, and I'm an employee this year. Uh, but whatever number of hours, 600 or whatever, you need to qualify. I think. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, work those, uh, and not last year and not this year even. Yeah, and some people even who qualify for EI make more money on CERB, so they're choosing to ch- uh, to apply for that instead. Because so. of the percentage reduction of whatever. Exactly. It's like if you make $30,000 a year, CERB is going to serve you better than applying for EI. And it's per person, right? So if you're a family, uh that's, you know, the two of you together, 4,000 a month is that's pretty good. Uh, mm-hmm. if there's two of you, uh it really does seem to punish individuals though. Um as I think I mentioned this previously, uh, you know, in, in my business, the superintendent of bankruptcy sets a standard in terms of how much you have to make before you make surplus in a bankruptcy. That's just sort of their thresholds for what a, a one person or a family of two or three can make. Right. And right now it's uh, just over twenty two hundred dollars is for one person uh, per month. Right. So if the superintendent of bankruptcy says twenty two hundred, but the CRB is two thousand, there's an interesting disconnect there. Um, I wonder how they came up with that number. I think $2,000 is a basic amount of money that an individual can live on. Maybe not in the city of Toronto or Vancouver and other major cities, but uh, most places in Canada. They average it out. Yeah. And because you're able to defer some payments. So like, for example, if you have a mortgage, you can defer your mortgage. You can, we've been given more time to pay our property taxes. So they've, uh, from, from all of that, um, $2,000 should get you by. I mean, this is emergency money. This is not money you're supposed to have anything left over at the end. It's supposed to pay your basic needs and get you through the next and, four and months. That's in the, for an, it just seems to favor, uh, say, couples or uh, families uh, versus an individual, right? Because like household uh, income, for example, like if, there's, if, if you pay $1,500 a month in rent for two people uh, and you're both qualifying for CRB, you get 4000 if yeah. somebody's paying a thousand dollars a rent for one person, they get two thousand. 
right? Yeah. There's yeah. an re- interesting disconnect there. Yeah. And if you have a student at home, then they might be able to get $1,250. So all of a sudden exactly. as a family, you've got you know almost more than $5,000 coming in. Um, yeah, of course, it, it's a benefit if you are, and this is, you know, dual income families, we can talk about that forever, too. Again, where, sorry, we can do a whole yeah, episode about that, too. <laughs> it's just, you know, so, I mean, if you're the sole breadwinner and you've lost your job, that's much more scary than if there's two of you working and only one of you have lost your job, the other one's still able to work. It's, right, because uh, you don't get more CRB if you have kids, Right. You get you get child tax benefit and you get whatever extra three hundred dollars per kid. It's, and it's one it's a one time payment. It's not a lot of money. Yeah, yet. and so that's really interesting. A single person who might qualify for CRB at two thousand a month, but has two kids, that's not adjusted, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, still a mm. lot of holes. I mean, I'm yeah, really impressed yeah. with all levels of government how they've handled how they've stepped up when they need to uh, to help. Uh, you know everybody. Uh, but there's definitely some holes, uh, especially with that rent relief that we talked about, uh, that still uh, need to be filled and still need to be talked about. But I think we covered a lot talking today. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, we covered a lot today. And um, talk you know, about it every week and we'll keep bringing up whatever, you know, new things happen and try to, I guess, maybe point out a few of the holes. Uh, and maybe they'll clean those up. Right. Well, I hope that everybody who's listening to this podcast is staying safe and feels supported, uh, whether it be financially from their government or, you know, just from your family. And if you are doing your work at home, I hope that this period of time is not causing you unnecessary stress and anxiety, that you're able to get your work done and still feel productive because that's a whole other issue how people are feeling. If you have any questions for Bo and I, uh, you can send us uh, an email, go to dearruby.com to get all our information, D-E-A-R-R-U-B-I.com. You can record a question or email in a question and we'll try to answer it. And if you have any comments on what we talked about today, we'll also address that. Uh, Really appreciate the conversation today, Bo, and look forward to tackling personal finance issues for Canadians next week uh, when we talk. All right. See you then. See you then. Bye.